For those of you who are in here with us today, our passage this morning is in Luke chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 1, we are picking up where we left off two weeks ago with verse 26. And this morning we come to one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. This is the angel's announcement to Mary that she would miraculously conceive and bear the Messiah. Now, the way we view Mary greatly affects how we understand this passage and the Christmas story as a whole. Um, I saw recently a meme on social media, always a dangerous thing to open a sermon with, but just hang with me, uh, that a, uh, a Catholic Twitter user had shared and someone shared it and got to me. Um, two side-by-side panels. One of them was a kind of poorly hand-drawn picture of a young woman, and the other one is an icon of Mary from, from Catholic theology. And so they had Protestant Mary and what they called Biblical Mary, really Catholic Mary. They said Protestant Mary was a favored one, a nice lady. She had other children. She could have been anyone. She's just nobody. Biblical Catholic Mary is the mother of God who prays for us, who was preserved from original sin, who was a perpetual virgin, who was the new Eve, the new Ark of the Covenant, the co-redemptrix. And the point that the person who created this was making is that the Catholic version of Mary is so much better than the Protestant version. And they had no scripture references in the Protestant version. They had some really... Okay, some real stretches of their biblical passages they were applying to these designations over here, including, uh, you know, they cheated because they used some of their non-canonical books as references. Um, Yeah, we can get into that later, it's okay. Uh, But here's what, what struck me. I was more moved and compelled by the dismissive Protestant presentation of Mary than the elaborate and exaggerated version that our Roman Catholic friends would try to put forward. The story of Mary in Luke chapter 1 isn't a story about Mary. It's a story about Mary's God. And that's going to be our focus today. As we, as we learn about Mary, as we learn who Mary is, we learn so much more about what Mary knew. It's a great song, it's, and it raises a really good question. What did Mary know? Well, the scripture tells us, in part, what Mary knew, and that's what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 1. Now, the challenge facing me this morning, as you see from the reference, I am covering 30 verses which really should be three sermons, because there's so much here. It is so very rich, and I'm not going to be able to get to it all. So what we're going to try to do in our time together, uh, so that we can all actually eat lunch today before we have our hearty uh, salads this evening, is to dig in and unearth at least some of the jewels that are in this text. Uh, And before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, your word is strong, and it is true, 
and it is good. And I am blessed to stand here and proclaim it to my brothers and sisters and our friends who are gathered with us. And Lord, I am unequal to the task of proclaiming it as it ought to be. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will use my feeble words and your very powerful words to work a a great work in the hearts of the people who hear me today. Help us to see you and help us to believe in Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those taking notes, our text is comprised of three scenes. So these will be your sections. Number one, we have Gabriel's announcement in verses 26 to 38. We have Elizabeth's greeting in verses 39 to 45. And we have Mary's song in verses 46 to 56. Gabriel's announcement, Elizabeth's greeting, Mary's song. And here's the big overarching idea that we're going to consider this morning. Mary believed that God keeps his promises even when they seem impossible. And so she faithfully submitted to his will and his plan for her life. Mary believed God and she submitted to him. So first, let's take a look at Gabriel's announcement in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. Now, if, if you, uh, well, well, we'll start reading. Verse 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And we'll pause there. If you recall, Luke began his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, by, remind, by telling his reader that he, had compi- he was compiling an orderly account of the events surrounding Jesus, his life. And last time we looked at the birth announcement of John the Baptist in the first part of chapter 1 that was made to Zechariah, that he and his barren wife Elizabeth would be blessed with a child despite their advanced age, a child who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Now Luke follows up this story with the account of Gabriel's other announcement, this time to the mother of the Messiah herself. And we see here in verse 26 that this takes place in the sixth month, meaning the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, just about the time she was starting to let people know she was expecting. You'll recall in the previous verse, uh, verses that she kept herself hidden for five months uh, and, then, and, and, and she worshiped God for... Uh, showing kindness to her, that he took away her reproach, and he has looked upon her. So now, in the sixth month, we have this meeting between the angel and Mary. Now, Luke intends for us to compare and contrast these two stories. The first story takes place, you recall, the visitation with Zechariah in the holy place, in the temple in Jerusalem. The second, in a commoner's home in Nazareth. The first person was greeted, greeted by the angel was a socially respectable scribe. The second person, a socially unimportant teenage girl. But as Dr. Benjamin Glad writes, Luke is demonstrating that while John is great, Jesus will be greater. But in doing this, Luke is also identifying Jesus with the lowly, which is a theme that's carried throughout his gospel. 
Just as in the previous section, Luke introduces our two main characters. We have the angel Gabriel, and we have this teenage girl named Mary. Now, for those who may not be familiar uh, with the customs of first century Israel, uh, and I don't know why you wouldn't, um, when Mary was described as a betrothed virgin, this means that she was a chaste young woman, most likely in her early teenage years, who was engaged to be married to a young man named Joseph. They married much earlier back then. Betrothal in this time period was taken more seriously than we take in just mere engagement. Uh, It was a legal contract that was not easily broken, required a writ of divorce to break it. In fact, if a betrothed man or woman is guilty of sexual infidelity, Deuteronomy 22 assigns the penalty of death, just as it does for adultery for a married person. So it's taken very seriously, betrothal. When two young people enter into this period of engagement with the help and support of their families and their community, The man would then work to prepare a home for his bride-to-be, which may take up to a year, and then they would be married and he would bring her to their new home. You may think think of this when you hear Jesus say that he goes to prepare a place for us in John chapter 14. Side note, that wasn't in my notes. Um, So we have Mary and Joseph in the village of Nazareth, in the region of Galilee, a sort of backwater small-town place far from the bustle of Jerusalem or the commercial activity of a port city. In fact, Nazareth has a reputation of being a nowhere sort of place, such that the disciple Nathanael would later scoff when he heard that Jesus came from there in in John chapter 1. Joseph was a carpenter, most likely just as his father was. Luke writes that Joseph was descended from the house and lineage of King David, although now, in this post-exile period, the royal line was not recognized or in power. Herod, the half-Edomite puppet king supported by the Romans, sits on the throne in Jerusalem while Joseph and his family live in obscurity in Galilee. The future of these two young people seems pretty predictable at first. Marriage, work, children, Sabbath observance, following the law of God, living quiet, faithful lives. That's what they had ahead of them. The Gospels describe both of these young people as being devout and obedient Jews, part of the remnant of faithful Israel living under the weight of foreign occupation and looking forward to the day when Messiah would come and free them from their captors. But then Mary is visited by an angel, and their predictable life plans are upended. Let's look at Gabriel's first words in verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. Now, last time I noted that when angels visited people, they would immediately have to say, don't be afraid. Well, this is actually an exception to the rule because here Gabriel greets Mary with a a word of encouragement. He calls her, oh, favored one. Now, the Latin, kind of the old Latin version of this greeting is rendered in English, as you may be familiar, hail Mary, full of grace. But the Greek is actually closer to the ESV's rendering. Gabriel greets her with a greeting as one who has been shown particular grace or favor by God, rather than Mary being full of grace herself. Then the angel says, the Lord is with you. Now this echoes the words of the angel of the Lord in the story of Gideon. In Judges 6, you may remember, Gideon was a nobody, 
threshing wheat in secret because he didn't want his, his, the Midianite raiders to find him and steal from him when the angel startles him with this greeting and gives him the news that he is called to be the leader of his people. The phrase here also has echoes of Isaiah 7. Now in that prophecy, the prophet says that the baby who would be the sign of God's faithfulness to Israel would be called Emmanuel, God with us. A prophecy that finds its long-term fulfillment in Jesus. This is what Matthew makes that connection as well. Greetings, Mary. You favored woman, the Lord is with you. Now this, this greeting confused Mary, greatly troubled her. So she didn't respond immediately. And then Gabriel goes on to remind her, don't be afraid, and reiterates that she's found favor with God. Now the Old Testament uses this language of finding favor with God with particular people, like Noah, and Moses, Gideon, and David. These are saints who have received God's grace and favor as they were found to be godly and faithful and obedient. The Lord was pleased with their deeds, but his grace to them and to us is always far beyond what we could actually earn or deserve by our obedience. So God is greatly gracious, but Mary is faithful, just as these others were faithful. So what's the angel's message for this highly favored young woman? Let's look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel tells this teenage virgin woman that she's going to have a baby. And not just any baby. A divine baby. She is to name him Jesus. The name Jesus is the English translation of the Greek version of his name, which in Hebrew would have been Yeshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Matthew draws this comparison as well. See, after Mary tells Joseph about what's about to happen, Joseph uh, has a dream and is visited by an angel who says his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. As we've already seen, names are important in Scripture, and Jesus' name is no exception. But the name is only the beginning. Look at how Gabriel describes this miraculous baby. He will be great. Now John, in, in, uh, earlier in Luke, Luke 1, was said to be great before the Lord. Jesus is to be great as the Lord. Spurgeon wrote that the greatness of Jesus is shown both in his most excellent person and in the matchless deeds that he would perform as God and Savior. He is called the Son of the Most High. Now this indicates that the baby comes from heaven, from the Most High God, that he shares the identity and nature of the Most High God. Dr. Benjamin Glad notes that these references to the Most High and to being the Son of God, we'll see later, actually allude to Jesus' existence before the incarnation. He is truly the eternal God in human flesh. Truly God and truly man. 
Now, Gabriel says that the, that the Lord God will give Jesus the throne of his father, David, so that he will reign over Israel, the house of Jacob, forever in a never-ending kingdom. Now, the promise of God to his people in the Old Testament is that one day the throne of David would be restored and that the promised Messiah, the anointed one, sent from God would reign on David's throne. This comes from 2 Samuel 7, 16, where God makes a covenant with King David saying, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Daniel the prophet writes in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." It should be noted that what we see throughout the book of Luke is that son of man is the way that Jesus often refers to himself. That's not an accident. That's not an accident. The prophet Micah also wrote, Micah 4-7, that in the latter days God would assemble his people in Zion and the Lord would reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And most gloriously we see Isaiah prophesying in Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is king. His kingdom will not end. Even if we don't see it fully now, one day all will see as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now because the royal line of succession passes through the Father, so as Joseph is to be the adoptive father of this baby who is a miracle. He will be of the house of David and in line to fulfill the promises of the prophets. Further, some commentators suggest that the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 later may actually be interpreted to be Mary's biological line, which also passes through the house of David. It's a little unclear. I'm not going to go fully out on that limb, but kind of. That... In both Joseph's line and Mary's line, there, there may be traces back to the king. Further proof that this baby 
is the David who was to come. The true and better David who would rescue his people. In either case, the angel declares this baby is the coming king who would sit on David's throne forever. So Mary hears this. And she asks a very fair question in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now the word virgin here isn't merely referring to a maiden, as some scholars try to argue. The original text literally says, I have never known a man. Mary isn't some gullible fool who would naively accept the news that you're going to be pregnant. Okay. She understands enough to know, she's young, but she understands enough to know that physical intimacy is typically required for pregnancy to occur. She also recognizes that the angel is saying she will soon be pregnant, and since she will not soon be married, she's confused about how all of this is to take place. Now again, compare her response to Zechariah's response in verse 18. The old priest responded to Gabriel's surprising news uh, of, a, of a miraculous uh, um, pregnancy beyond the time of, of childbearing with disbelief, seeming to ask for proof that Gabriel was telling the truth. Here, Mary isn't challenging the angel, but asking for clarification, some sort of further explanation. How, how will this happen? Unlike Zechariah and Elizabeth's miraculous senior adult pregnancy, which does have biblical precedent, literally no woman in the history of mankind has ever experienced a virgin conception before. So Mary's initial confusion is a bit justifiable. So Gabriel provides more detail in verses 35 through 37. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month of her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Gabriel says that the Holy Spirit will perform this miracle as he rests upon Mary and overshadows her. This language is similar, actually, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, as the Spirit of God hovers over the waters of the unformed earth. It's also similar to Acts 1, as Jesus says to his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come upon you to empower you to proclaim the gospel. The image of overshadowing here is similar to that of the Old Testament tabernacle. When the Spirit of the Lord or the presence of the Lord was demonstrated there, it was surrounded by a cloud. We should recognize that what Luke records here, inspired by the Holy Spirit in his writing, is exactly the information we need about the Incarnation, but not necessarily all the details we might be curious about. As one writer noted, there's a kind of modesty in this description. God doesn't have to explain the exact details of the miracle because we don't need all that. This passage isn't blasphemous or crude like the work of Greco-Roman mythmakers or even the, the critiques of modern pagan critics of the Bible. In these few poetic phrases, we are given the sense of what will happen in Mary's womb. And that's sufficient. The Holy Spirit will work a miracle within her, and she will be pregnant. 
Now, Gabriel further says in verse 35 that the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Because Jesus is to be born of a virgin by the mysterious workings of the Holy Spirit, he will be born perfectly holy, without the stain of a sin nature passed down from our first parents. This, this is one of the most important aspects of the virgin birth. Jesus came to earth, a human man born of a virgin, in order to pay for our sins. As the writer of Hebrews describes in Hebrews 5, those who serve as priests must atone not only for the sins of the people through animal sacrifice, but also for their own sin. Jesus, who became for us a great high priest, had no sin of his own that needed cleansing, but offered himself as the final perfect sacrifice, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to take away our sin. Jesus' sinless conception and holy condition were the necessary requirements for our salvation. The virgin birth isn't just an amazing miracle that demonstrates that Jesus is God's son, though it is. It is the very thing that makes our redemption even possible. Because a sin-stained Messiah cannot save himself, let alone anyone else. In order for Jesus to be our Savior, he must be perfect. And in order for him to be perfect, he must be conceived perfectly, holy by the Holy Spirit. The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now I want to pause here because this really is the linchpin of this message. And this may be the point where a few of you might honestly be checking out, because especially if you're not sure you really believe in this. Virgin conception? God and human flesh? This is the part of the Christian message that just defies human logic. How can anyone really believe in something that's so scientifically impossible? Well, there are those in other denominations or churches who have tried and still try to present a version of the Christian faith that is embarrassed by or explains away these miraculous details, trying to focus instead on the moral teachings or the, the life of the church community. For over 100 years, certain scholars in, in Christian history, from the neoliberals to the postmoderns, have argued that the virgin birth is not really a necessary doctrine, that it's too problematic in our imperial, uh, empirical scientific age. But the fact is that if we blush at the idea of defending the miraculous birth of Jesus, we cannot dare try to argue for the miraculous resurrection of Jesus either. These two supernatural historical events are equally necessary for the Christian gospel to be worth anything at all. And one is not more impossible than the other. We believe and we affirm Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, the eternal Son, very God of very God, fully man, fully God, born of a virgin, born under the law, born perfect, living a sinless life, and dying as a sacrifice and a substitute for mankind, and then being raised again on the third day in glory. This we believe, and we do not budge. There's more to be said on this point, but 
Time is short, so let's keep moving. Gabriel tells Mary of Elizabeth's pregnancy. As we noted, Elizabeth had just begun coming out in public since she and Zechariah had conceived. It was now the sixth month. But the, the news had certainly not made it all the way up to Nazareth. I mean, there was no Facebook to post. Hey, here's a picture. Look at our, ba- yeah, look at our baby belly, you know? So Mary, even though they were related, no way for Mary to know already that Elizabeth, Elizabeth, who was in her later years, was pregnant. So the, Mary, so the angel tells her, tells her that Elizabeth is in her sixth month. She has also conceived a son. And then he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. He, he, adds, he adds Elizabeth's pregnancy almost as added proof. God is doing something incredible. God is doing something miraculous right now. For nothing is impossible with him. Indeed, this is the joyous message of this announcement. God's plans will always come to pass, even if human reason says otherwise. We saw this back in Genesis 18, as the Lord said to Abraham and Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer that resounds from cover to cover in the Bible is no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. We must agree with Job in Job 42 verse 2 when he says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Mary's response then in verse 38 is a model for all of us to follow. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Consider the implications of Mary's response. This teenage girl had plans for a normal life. Marriage, keeping a home, children down the road, growing old with her husband. With this angelic announcement, she now faces a completely different set of circumstances. Pregnancy outside of marriage, social stigma, perhaps the shunning of her family, potential divorce, or worse, from Joseph. Accusations of promiscuity. The responsibility of carrying, delivering, and then raising the Son of God and all the emotional highs and lows that that this represents. Y'all, I got three kids. None of them are divine. Um, And I am... uh, on pins and needles, afraid they're going to fall and hit their head on things every day. Now imagine how stressed out this teenage girl would be with the three-year-old Jesus climbing on things, and she's like, he's the Messiah, I've got to keep him alive. With all of this before her, she says, yes. She submits to God's will. Calling herself his bondservant, literally his slave. I am God's slave. Let his word be as it is, and I'll follow it. As one writer put it, faithful people respond to God's plan with submission, even if they don't understand all of it. What courage. What faith. Now the scene shifts in location as Mary seeks encouragement from the one person who might have an inkling of what she's facing. So let's look now at verses 39 through 45. In those days, 
Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the into the hill country to a town in Judah and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth and was excuse me when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the holy spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now in those days is a transitional phrase Luke uses to change change scenes. Sometimes shortly after Gabriel's visit, Mary makes the trip from from Nazareth which is in the north, to the region of Judah in the south. Now, we don't know how much time has passed, but we can assume it's not long after verse 38 because she travels with haste and because of the framing of how long she's there. We'll see that in a few minutes. The text says she travels to a town in Judah. Some commentators suggest that this specific town may actually be Hebron, which is one of the cities in Judah's hill country that was designated for the descendants of the tribe of Levi, like Zechariah and Elizabeth. So it's possible that that was where she was going. This would be a three to four days journey of up to 100 miles. So it was very likely that Mary traveled along with a passing caravan since she never would have made the journey by herself. It's not stated, but I think logically we can assume this um, just because of the nature of of life in, in the first century there in Israel. So Mary reaches the home of Elizabeth and her temporarily silent husband, And Mary calls out a greeting to her relative. And verse 41 says that when Mary heard the greeting, the baby leapt. He leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Gabriel had said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And here we see in this moment uh, uh, that John responds to Mary's greeting. And Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit and makes a, a... pronouncement of a a prophecy or a declaration here. And she makes a series of four very powerful statements. Verse 42, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now the word blessed here, when used in the passive voice in scripture, in other words, when someone is called blessed instead of doing the blessing, this is always signified as being blessed by God. It's also interesting to see that later, as 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 an interesting side note, in Luke 11, Jesus would redirect this type of statement uh, in an interesting way. In Luke 11, verses 27 through 28, he's teaching, and it says that as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, it's not just like a gotcha passage for our Roman Catholic friends. Can't be. But more importantly, I want you to see this. That blessing that Jesus says in Luke 11 also applies to Mary because she heard the word of the Lord and kept it. She's blessed, not because she is the virgin mother, but because she is a faithful disciple. She's a faithful follower of God. Blessed are you, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 33, or 43, rather. 
And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, every other time the word Lord is used in this chapter, it's referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Here, Elizabeth uses this holy title to refer specifically to Mary's unborn baby. In fact, Elizabeth is the first person in all of the scriptures to affirm that Jesus is Lord. Something that Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 12 can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It should also be noted that in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, he specifically links this title of Lord to Jesus' divinity as well as his authority. So this is a clear pointer again that this baby in Mary's belly is God in human flesh. Verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. We should note This is real important, that the text is very plain here in showing us that Elizabeth's unborn child, John, has personality and personhood. John is not just a blob of tissue or a product of conception. This unborn child, like all unborn children, is a human being imprinted with the image of God and has dignity because of that. Don't let anyone try to tell you that a baby in the womb is anything less than a person who God made and who deserves to be given the chance at life. I will, I will die on this hill, folks. Abortion is evil. It is a sin. It is a sin against the image of God. And I say that knowing that there may be some here who have made that choice. And I'm, I can tell you 100% there is grace and forgiveness for you. But the Bible does not does not uh, uh, make any distinction here. Unborn children are people. They are people whom God loves. Step off my soapbox now. Verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What's interesting here is that the word for blessed in verse 45 is different than the, than the word for blessed in verse 42. Verse 42, we said, was that you were blessed by God. But verse 45, this word blessed actually carries the meaning of happiness, well-being, and joy. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here, Elizabeth declares that Mary is made happy and flourishing and is, 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 has well-being because she has believed that the Lord would keep his promise to her. And could not the same be said for Elizabeth herself, who, like Mary, believed that God would do what he had promised by the word of his angelic messenger. So how does Mary respond to these amazing pronouncements from from Elizabeth? She responds by singing. I heard it years ago. I thought it was such a great great quote. Uh, a, A pastor said, the way that that, that, that I'm going to butcher it now, said that redeemed people respond to the truth of God by singing. May that be true of us as well. Mary overflows with praise to God. And this is our final section, uh, verses 46 through 56. We'll just read this as, uh, as one piece here. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now this section in Luke is sometimes referred to as the Magnificat which is the first word of Mary's song in Latin. So that's how this section is sometimes referred to. My soul magnifies. Now commentators draw clear connections between Mary's song here in Luke 1 and Hannah's song that we read earlier in 1 Samuel 2. The same themes carry through both of them. So in our final moments together, I want, us to, I want to highlight some of the connections between these two passages and then how they connect to the rest of Luke's gospel. Like Hannah's song, the Magnificat's main theme is that God brings down the mighty and the proud, but raises up the humble, and that God will give strength to his people and to his chosen king. Both women identify themselves in their prayer as the Lord's servant. Both women are glorifying God for providing children when there is no hope of a child. Both women acknowledge that God cares for the poor, and exalts those of low estate. This would go on to be a major theme throughout Luke's gospel as he emphasizes Jesus' tenderness with and ministry toward people of lower social ranks, such as women and children and the poor and the sick, the outcast and the outsider. Mary's song, like Hannah's before it, highlights God's special care and compassion for those who are helpless and have no other hope but him. Both songs expand the focus of their praise beyond their personal circumstances to include God's covenant faithfulness with the nation of Israel as a whole. They both emphasize the undeserved mercy and grace of God that he shows to his people. Hannah's prayer seems to anticipate the rule of God's chosen king, who would be David, while Mary's prayer looks forward to God's future Davidic king, Jesus. And the same Lord that Hannah praises is the one that Mary carries and the one that Elizabeth and John greet with joy. Now Mary's song is rich with references to the Old Testament. I'm just going to run through a few of them. There's just a lot here. In verse 47, Mary refers to God my Savior. This phrase is used by the prophets like Isaiah to describe God's rescue of his people from exile. It should also be noted that Mary is herself not sinless. She is a sinner who needs a Savior. And God has provided that Savior for her. In verse 48, it says that God looked upon her humble estate. One commentator says this phrase is similar linguistically to the Hebrew word for affliction that is used by Hannah and is used by Leah earlier in the book of Genesis. Now the lowly one is to be called blessed by God. In verse 50, we have this phrase, his mercy is for those who fear him, 
from generation to generation. Throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, we see uh, the fear of the Lord uh, extolled, that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that, that all shall see and fear, that the, the God's people fear him, the ones who, are, who faithfully follow him. And this fear is not a, a craven fear of judgment, but an awe and a recognition of his power and his authority and his transcendence and a recognition that he is different than us and he is above us. So it is right and good that God's people should fear him in that way. And she says here that his mercy is on those who fear him, who recognize who he is and submit to him as God. And this is true from generation to generation, for God has been faithful from generation to generation. In verse 51, Mary says that the Lord has shown strength in his arm. This is an image throughout the writings of uh, throughout the writings and the prophets and the Psalms and, and the prophets that points to God's deliverance of his people. For example, we see God scattering his enemies with his mighty arm in Psalm 89, verse 10. Isaiah frequently uses the imagery of God rescuing his people with an outstretched arm and defeating, defeating his enemies and defending his people. In verses 52 and 53, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. These words, we're going to see them reflected throughout the ministry of Jesus that Luke describes. That he is constantly lifting up the humble while confounding the self-righteous and the powerful, the ones who think they have no need of him. This is the heart of Luke's gospel. It, it, it's the heart of the gospel message, isn't it? Uh, hold your place in Luke and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. So, would this be? 40, 50, 60 years later, 50, 60 years later, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Look at what Paul writes here in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for, to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This was Mary's boast. That the God who is strong uses the weak, 
to overthrow the mighty. Now, there are those in our day who would take this beautiful passage and try to turn it into some sort of political manifesto that Mary was arguing for, like, social overthrow and and push all that aside. Because that forgets the rest of the context of this passage and this book. God will protect and defend the needy. His eye is on the orphan and the widow. He will feed the hungry and fill them with good things. He will tear down the mighty and the proud. This is both an encouragement to us who read it, and it's a warning to us who read it. If you're here this morning, and you're thinking to yourself, this is all cool, I'm glad you guys like this. I don't need this. I'm good. I've got it together. This baby came to tear down the proud, to make you humble, to show you that you need a savior. You need a redeemer. And for those of you who are low, of humble estate, this is an encouragement to you that this savior, he is close to the brokenhearted. He sees the needy. You were not forgotten by him. And finally, in verses 54 and 55, Mary says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary draws a clear parallel to the promises made to Abraham that are being fulfilled now in the birth of the Messiah. Promises of a nation, a kingdom, and a seed or offspring who would bless all the nations. Paul points out in Romans 9 that all who are in Christ are, or in Romans, that all who are in Christ are indeed Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. This fulfillment of Abraham's promise, of the Abrahamic covenant, ultimately finds its full flower in Jesus, who would draw people from all nations to himself. So that we all who are of faith in him have become Abraham's children. And it's for us as well. Mary sees it. This is about more than just Mary. She sees that it's about God. So after Mary shares her joyful praise to her Redeemer God, verse 56 says that Mary goes on to stay with Zechariah and Elizabeth for three months before returning to her home. And this phrase fills out a few more details about the timeline for us. Since Mary isn't mentioned in the next section, which describes the birth of John, we can safely assume that she leaves just before John is born. Secondly, Luke states that Mary returned to her home, not Joseph's home. This means that she is still not married to Joseph, which makes sense with uh, what we see from Matthew and kind of how, how Joseph responds to all of this. And so from here, the focus of this narrative then shifts back to Zechariah and Elizabeth, which we'll take a look at next week. But for now, I want to close our discussion by asking a question. What did Mary know? Mary knew that God is sovereign, and he can accomplish what is impossible. Mary knew that she belonged to him. And she should and could entrust herself to his will. 
Mary knew that the baby she carried was indeed the Lord, the promised Savior, the mighty Deliverer of Israel. She knew that God was bringing to pass the fulfillment of generations of waiting. In other words, Mary knew quite a bit. She maybe didn't know that her child would one day walk on water or call them the storms or give sight to the blind. But if you had told her, I don't think she would have been surprised. Perhaps Mary didn't know all the details of God's miraculous redemption, but she knew God, and that was enough. So now I must ask, do you know him? Do you believe that nothing is impossible for God? Do you believe that the same God who caused a virgin to conceive can also miraculously raise spiritually dead hearts to life and cleanse even the guiltiest sinner, taking away guilt and shame forever? Do you believe that? Do you know God as your Savior? And does your spirit rejoice in him? We should let the example of our sister Mary encourage us. She's rightly called blessed, not because she is inherently perfect or powerful or worthy of veneration, but because she proclaimed by her faith that she knew the God of her fathers and she trusted in him fully. May all of us follow her example. Redeemed sinners who say to our sovereign God, behold, I am your servant. Whatever you ask of me, Let it be done according to your word. Let's pray. Holy God, this text is full of amazing things. But it is just as amazing that we can approach you and call you Father because of the work of this baby who grew up to be Jesus the Christ. We do not deserve your blessing. We do not deserve your grace. But you have shown strength in your mighty arm. You have defeated our greatest enemy, sin. You have defeated the enemy, death, that we no longer have to fear Because our Lord not only died to rescue us from sin, but he rose again, showing victory over death itself. And now we who believe in him have hope. Lord God, as we consider these things and ponder them in our heart this Christmas season, I pray that we will be encouraged by the example of our sister Mary, a young woman who was not in and of herself special or exceptional, other than that she was obedient and faithful, and she knew her God. And I pray that we will walk in her footsteps as men and women who know our God, who believe that you can do the impossible and submit ourselves fully to your perfect will. We pray these things in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.